0: My dear friends, do not fall back asleep. Although the days are short and the night is long, do not fall back asleep. If your heart still beats for humanity, I beg you, go find your kindling. Reignite the flame within your heart. Do not fall back asleep. Remember 401 years of terror for Black lives reaffirm your commitment to justice, do not fall back asleep. Remember, we still can't breathe, even though we find a way to keep smiling, laughing, drumming, crying, working, marching, do not fall back asleep. For me and mine, there is no option. We cannot step out of our black skin and take a day off. There is no day off. Our ancestral melanated garment calls us to action every day. Do not fall back asleep. My dear ally, there can be no peace in our land if the blood of Black people continues to flow through the streets. Please, stay awake. Do not fall back asleep.
1: I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you wanna hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back everyone to another episode of the podcast. I'm excited to be introducing Dr. Kelly Kirksky to you all. She is a wife, a mother, a writer, a motivational speaker, and holistic psychotherapist. She founded Creative Wellness Solutions in 1989 and has been in the mental health field for more than 27 years now. She worked for many years as a holistic psychotherapist at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Integrative and Lifestyle Medicine. Her areas of specialization include hypnosis, visualization, yoga, and other non-traditional healing modalities. Dr. Kelly has traveled to South Africa, Spain, Venezuela, New York, and many other national and international venues to share her techniques and wellness strategies. Dr. Kelly believes in learning healing ways from other cultures and bringing those wise ways to the masses. She is the published author of a poetry collection called Poetry, Prose, and Miscellaneous Musings. I am personally really happy to have her here because I originally met Dr. Kelly through a writing group that we were both participants in together, and I was immediately struck by her vivacity and her depth. The ways that she feels and thinks about things are incredibly unique, and she has a wealth of knowledge and information. In this conversation, we get to hear about Dr. Kelly's early life and how her maternal lineage influenced the person that she has become. Listening to Dr. Kelly feels like listening to a very gifted and talented storyteller. And it feels as if she's passing things down in an oral tradition to us, even though we're not actually in person with her. We discuss her understanding of her ancestral lineage and the impacts that slavery had on her family, Black people in America as a whole, and how that history motivates her to keep finding creative and movement-based ways of healing. At the end, Dr. Kelly shares with us one of her beautiful and really powerful poems from her book, and I know that you will be deeply impacted and moved by this conversation as I was. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. I am incredibly grateful to have you on the podcast today and I am just really appreciative of you taking the time and energy to be here with us all.
0: I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you asking. It's always nice to have the opportunity to to share what I do
1: and to have a conversation with you. I'm so excited. I know we have many, many interesting topics to get into today. And I'm wondering if we can start with going back to your early life. I know you had shared with me recently about you as a little girl and some of the very formative experiences that you had from early childhood. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share that with us before we get into your more current life and work in the world.
0: Absolutely. So, Basically, I grew up in a household where we weren't going to traditional doctors very often. My mother, my grandmother, they were people that would gather with friends in the neighborhood and talk about the latest herbal strategies. I remember my mom had this very thick paperback book called Back to Eden. And it was not uncommon to have this pot of sassafras tree bark boiling on the stove ready for when any one of us were sick. So I knew at a young age that healing happened in a lot of different ways. That it it happened around the dinner table with what we put in our bodies. It happened while we were singing as a family. It happened while we were dancing it happened when we were out in nature it didn't always happen in a doctor's office that was that was rare but when i was a very young child when i was two years old my life you know shifted in the sense that i did get a clear glimpse of that other side of medicine so i had this family tradition of herbal medicines really somatic type of remedies. And then at two years old, my mom, she discovered this little dry patch in the center of my forehead. And I can still remember her kneeling down and saying, what is that? And so she did start taking me to, to doctors. And alongside that, there were also these natural treatments, but I remember Going to the doctor and laying on a table with these little cups over my eyes, getting ultraviolet ray treatment, this violet light. And keep your eyes closed. It'll damage your eyes if you look at it. Don't look into the light. I remember all these different remedies from the doctor. I was probably four years old during the elimination diet as a kid. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of restrictions I had and that little spot on my forehead, it it grew worse. I mean, it grew worse. I mean, that, that rash, that dry patch extended all over my body from head to toe. So I was a bit of um, a leper. I remember hearing the story about the leper. That's how I felt like a leper. And my mother, again, she was that woman that was going to use some traditional remedies, but also she would mix up some salves, some potions. And in the middle of playtime, I'm playing out in the street with my friends, she would call me in. And this was before the street lights came on. So people were still outside playing. She would call me in and she will have already have ripped up strips of sheet. and wrap me in it, wrap my hands, wrap my arms, all the way up to my shoulder, wrap the whole length of both legs, both arms, to keep this medicine in. So that's how I would sleep. I remember waking up in the morning with, sometimes those white sheets would be bloody because I would have been scratching Mm. in the night. And most of the time, They were just kind of loose and hanging off. I felt like a mummy.
1: How many years did this go on for?
0: Oh, gosh. I, it began at two. And all the way up until high school, I was always wearing long sleeves, uh, long pants. It could be a few degrees outside, but I wasn't going to expose my skin And even through college, you know, even through college. Now, I began to make peace with it when I was in high school, probably around 10th or 11th grade. I remember going to a retreat and meeting this young lady who had just returned from a a year in Japan. And so I was completely fascinated with, she was a Rotary scholar and I was, amazed at this young girl, same age as me, that she had traveled to Japan and studied in Japan for a year. So we got to be friends. And we we have poetry in common, that we both love poetry. And we're at this retreat with with the nuns, Notre Dame nuns. And she invited me. Hey, why don't you come to my house? She lived in Canton, Ohio. Her dad was a physician. She had this huge house. I was coming from inner city Cleveland, so I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting. This is this is pretty nice." Well, we were we were we we're playing, drawing, doing something, and she looked at my hands because my hands were exposed, and my hands on. Um, my hands, the skin is discolored because my skin would get so dry that a layer of skin would actually come off and that held the melanin. So that was never regenerated. So I have these white marks on my hands and I'm a brown girl with white marks on my hands. And I remember she noticed the, the marks on my hand and she said, oh my gosh, that looks like a flower. That looks like a flower on your hand. Mm -hmm. And it was something about her saying that, that it it reframed that self-conscious feeling that I had always carried. Mm -hmm. And I began to soften towards myself in that moment. I was probably in 11th grade, still always chasing the right ointment, still going from doctor to doctor still making potions in the kitchen and and really that has that has gone on it's a topic dermatitis is eczema and it's just about getting to a place where it's controlled but what having the skin condition ha- did for me it took me out of the mainstream
2: mm-hmm.
0: it took me out of that rhythm of what normal Everyday children do. Yes. It made me self so conscious. It made me introspective. I became a journaler at a very young age. I, re- I remember my mom always smoked Virginia Slim cigarettes. And I was amazed at the packaging because it was this lovely woman on the package, it was very Art Deco. Mm-hmm. And they had this uh, advertisement, get a free diary if you send in 12 box tops of Virginia Slim cigarettes. <laughs> oh, my God. So here I am, <laughs> this, like, 10-year-old kid saving up my mother's box tops from her, from her cigarettes. And that's when I got my first journal. Hmm. And my journal became my best friend. I wasn't hanging out with a lot of buddies because I was very self-conscious. Mm-hmm. So I began to just put all my thoughts, all of my feelings right into my little diary. And I would writing it every day. And that was, my, that was my outlet. But so the gift from eczema was learning to be a contemplative person, an introspective person, and connected to nature, very connected to nature. My mother knew that if we went out together, then I would go out.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: She took us on a lot of walks. We had a a creek near our house, so she would take us down to the creek and with her bologna sandwiches, <laughs> <laughs> with her bologna sandwiches in her bag, and she would show us how to skip rocks. And you know, we would sit there and really just admire nature. And another thing that she would do was to sit a chair on the porch, one of those folding lawn chairs. And she would say, you have to come out of the house and spend five minutes on the porch. You have to let the sun touch your skin. The sun is going to heal your skin.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. You've got to come out. And I would never want to come out. I would find any small little space between the wall and the radiator, just cuddle in there. But she would say, no, you have to come out. Yeah. You have to come out. The sun is waiting to heal you. And
1: I did it. Thank you so much for sharing these stories and these vignettes, Dr. Kelly. I can feel... Several times I felt transported into like the imagery that you described of, you know, being wrapped and clearly your mother played such an important role in in really tending to you and nurturing you despite this ongoing issue you were having. Yeah, I would say that
0: as the fourth girl, uh, I mean, I was the fourth girl child wow. that she had. And we could get lost. We could disappear into that large group of people. And then I had a younger brother also. Mm -hmm. So the eczema gave me private time with my mother. Wow. Because she had to take me to the doctor. There was some secondary gain there of having eczema. I got mom all to myself. We're going to take some ride out in the country to some doctor and I didn't care about the doctor I didn't care about the medicine I cared about me and my mom are going to have an adventure and nobody else is with us but us
1: Wow!
0: we're going to get some hot dogs afterwards I don't even eat hot dogs today but (laughs) that was you know that was part of those those special moments so I can see clearly the beauty that came out of that and how it formed so much of who I am because a big part of what I did by myself was turning on the record player and dancing. Mm -hmm. I mean, dancing and dancing and dancing until I would fall down and my head was spinning. And, and that continued, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that continued that, that movement for peace.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm floored by how many seeds there are of your the work that you do now in the world are in those stories of yourself as a young child. And I want to get into all that in a moment, but I just, I'm struck by how many years of your primary development were spent having this condition that made you self-conscious and to feel like a leper. And I'm curious, like, did you feel like your peers were ostracizing you? Did did people say cruel things? I know you described feeling very other, but was that more just like your own self-consciousness or did things actually happen as a result of this skin condition?
0: Yeah, I would say both and mm-hmm. I would retract, you know, just take myself out of uh, out of the scene, but I also had I always had like a couple good girlfriends and it was usually those little bad boys that would call me names, mm-hmm. you know, or elephant or rashy or, you know, being mean kids. It was the, the little boys that were usually the mean boys. The girls were usually just my, just my friend, not even really paying attention to the eczema, to the skin condition. I was hyper aware because I would look at my skin and I would look at other people's skin and say, Oh, that's what normal skin looks like. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I wish I had that. I was very, very hyper aware. I had, you know, three beautiful, my sisters all very beautiful, talented women who I, I looked up to as a kid and still do look up to my sisters that they didn't have that skin like mine. Mm So, I was very different, and they were protective too yeah they were they were protective because it was also a painful condition mm-hmm. It wasn't just unsightly, but it was physically uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable in my own flesh mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and for so many years it's I'm just in awe of your mother and her dedication and it's amazing that you've been able to, you know, see the secondary gains or the, the things that were beneficial about the situation. But that's a lot to go through as a young person.
0: It, it was. And I also had something about me where people who were a little bit ostracized from others would gravitate towards me. hmm so at a young age, I was giving people makeovers, inviting people over to my house. We were doing things, you know, people that couldn't uh, have a freedom at their own home. Oh, they knew they could come to my house and it was, we could do whatever we wanted <laughs> to do for good or for bad. <laughs> it, it was a, it was a free and environment. So we did a lot of Singing, a lot of dancing. And then when we got older, we did a lot of going out and dancing Mm. and singing. That was like a major thing. (laughs) It was a major thing. Even though I wasn't the greatest dancer, I wasn't trained and I wasn't the greatest singer. I was kicked out of the choir. But the singing, the dancing was always that healing, joyful space for me to land. Yeah. 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 Then another, well, let me just, let me just share this interesting thing that's just now is that I never played an instrument because at school, they would come tap a beat on your desk. And if you couldn't repeat that beat, they would say, you're going to our class, you're not going into music class. So I didn't play the violin like the rest of my sisters. But at some point, there was a man from Ghana, that came and stayed at the rectory of our church. And he would make drums. Mm. and we would gather and he would make drums and we would drum right in the grass in front of the church. So that introduced, you know, the drum to me. So then I would begin to mimic the drum with my body and with my feet. So I didn't have my own drum, but his name was Pajo. But Pajo taught me about this rhythm that completely transported me into this place of peace and joy and ease and release
1: hmm. that was my world my sanctuary I love hearing about that and I I'm again I'm just so struck so so tell tell the listeners about the kind of work that you do now, because they're going to be amazed. I am floored by like how much of what you do now has been with you in all these different ways since your early life. So describe your work and, you know, we can go back in time and talk about how you got there, but like, talk about your work as it is now.
0: Okay. So I have a, uh, a doctorate in psychology and counselor education from Ohio state. And, um, So my primary job has been uh, training master's level counselors and working as a holistic psychotherapist, bringing in music, dance, guided imagery, hypnotherapy, uh, all the somatic ways of being. I bring in drums and percussion instruments. I do EMDR and use, uh, I've created a system of African centered bilateral stimulation for that. So, going back into our cultural roots and using that, that healing energy that's innate from a place of the heartbeat, the drum, the movement, art. I'm also an expressive arts therapist, dancing mindfulness facilitator. I do everything possible to share various keys for emotional expression, healthy emotional expression for my clients. Integrating in other aspects like yoga, like energy medicine, tapping, uh, emotional freedom technique, all of those things, chanting—if clients are open to it,
1: mm-hmm. all of that—it's just amazing to hear about. And I love how eclectic you are, and then also how your your practice, your work, has evolved to be so eclectic. And I'm curious, you know, because here we talk a lot about women's lives. Like, what have you noticed about? having more creative methodologies or let's call them non-linear techniques, how that helps women in a way that might be different than say just talking about our problems or thinking about them or even writing about them. Yeah, so I, I, it has helped
0: people just move beyond the words, beyond the, the cognitive expression, the trying to put, syllables and sentences to pain the pain is in the body it's in the organs it's in the tissues and being able to create a vibration that helps to um rattle that away it helps to transmute that to soften those those wounds so that real healing can take place i can sit down and talk to somebody, and listen to somebody all day. That's important too. But there's also a point where we need to tap on the body. We, we need to touch the body. We need to move our feet. Get the energy in the body moving and connect back to our container. We've been so um, indoctrinated and in being emotionalists and just following this rigid, linear way, and we're we're not that. We're we're not that.
1: Ah, uh, so true. Do you know? Do you know Shamali, our dog, who created the Awakening Women Institute? No. I think you might love her and her work, her community. Anyway, she's had a big impact and influence on my life, and. She's created and found and sort of teaches all these different types of practices, different, but similar to what you're describing, but using music and touch and movement as a way of unlocking and and healing and releasing from, like you're saying, the tissues, the cells. um and it's just these things that when I experience them, I'm like, oh, I couldn't have gotten there just through talking, but it was through. This intensity of movement and sound and sensory experience that I feel more free on the other end.
0: Yeah. I mean, we really, we heal, we heal through the body. And that's my lived experience from since forever. I know when I'm feeling out of balance that I have not been in my body, moving my body because that's why we're in this vehicle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's portable. I mean, you know, you know it's like that's why our our, our soul is encased in this container so we can move it. Mm. So and become more more free instead of these stagnant people that sit in chairs all day long and hope for something better.
1: Oh my gosh, so true. Thank you for saying that. And I'm feeling it more than ever now in our Zoom culture, just like how much gets lost, you know, without moving together, eating together, being together.
0: And I will, I will say this, that even in the Zoom culture, I still move with my people. Yeah. I don't let the technology stop me from being the essence of who I am. So when I'm with my my clients, when I'm presenting to groups, whether it's a corporate group, whether it's a university group, or whether it's (laughs) three-year-olds, I am getting people moving and shaking and tapping and, you know, moving their shoulders, like feel that. What does that feel like? Rolling the shoulders, stretching through the heart center, reaching up, you know? So We don't have to be bound to our chair. And if we are, we can still move in our chair. (laughs) We can move in our chair. So when people tell me, oh gosh, I'm so tired of the Zoom, I'm so tired, I just, uh," do what you need to do with the plate that's in front of you. Our limitation is between our ears and our heart. So I'm still moving with my friends on Zoom, I'm dancing. And particularly with my clients. I love that. Right. Any audience. I I was with um, a group of uh, children from age 3 to 12 last Saturday teaching mindfulness meditation and journaling. And it was fantastic to watch those kids stretch their body and reach towards the sky. It was the best. It was the best medicine for me being in the midst of them, mm. watching them connect to their body. Yeah. We forget the body sometimes and leave it on the curb.
1: Oh, yes, we do. And just hearing you, I'm remembering my body. You guys can't see us, but <laughs> Dr. Kelly's leading me through some shoulder wiggles and yeah, something else opens up.
0: Mm-hmm. That's how we reclaim our aliveness. Mm-hmm. And particularly me coming from a culture of people that were enslaved, imprisoned, and put into servitude, having those daily expressions of freedom is very important to the soul of me. Mm -hmm. It honors my here now moment, and it honors my ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, I will not allow myself to be in bondage. Mm. And so moving my body, even like right now, my knee is not feeling the greatest. Okay. So the knee's not feeling the greatest, but the elbows are doing all right. We can do all right with the elbows. The hands are feeling good. Mm-hmm. So looking at what is working. How can I move
1: that? Thank you for all of that. Thank you for naming that piece about your ancestral lineage. And I want to speak to that in a moment, but just this, this reminder, because it's so easy. I find when something isn't feeling good, it's like my attention goes there. My attention goes to the limitation or the pain, but to actually invite the attention to go into looking for what is working, what is well right now and how liberating just that question can be.
0: Right. Yeah. What is, what is well, what can I utilize to take me from being at a level one on the low emotion and energetic scale to closer to a 10. So if you think about people that have been enslaved, if we go back to the middle passage and we talk about, you know, these are people laying in the bowels of a ship as cargo hands, Shackle, shackled at the waist, shackled at the feet. So the motion is definitely, well, restricted, right? Yes. Very much so. Very much so. So how do we express when we're restricted physically and restricted from fear Mm -hmm. and trauma? We can move our eyes. We can move our mouth. Perhaps we can move our neck, we can move our toes, maybe we can move our fingers, you know, it's like, what do you have control over in this physical temple? So if this is not working, maybe this is. So if those fingers can flutter, but the wrists are bound, there's still a freedom there.
1: Hmm this is i wish everybody could see you right now cuz it's so it's powerful just to watch your body move as you say the words and i know we talked about your mother and your grandmother as you know passing down this herbal healing these these traditions to you and i'm wondering if there's anything you want to share about other aspects of your ancestral lineage and All the forces that, you know, are there seen and unseen that have contributed to who you are as a woman and how you lead and contribute.
0: I think one of the biggest things is that my, my mother, my grandmother, and even my great grandmother always created space for people that were in need. So My great-grandmother actually was able to um, buy a large house. So when people were coming from the South to get away from Jim Crow at its most stringent form, she would give them a room until they got on their feet. So she was a welcoming force in the community for good. Like, I'm going to help you in this transition. You're trying to make a better life. I'm going to be a bridge and my grandmother was the same person. So those people that were discarded, my grandmother on my dad's side, she always had, I mean, we had pops that lived down in the basement. He was like 99 and he would say, hey gal, we want some coffee, (laughs) you know? So I would sit down, you know, in the basement with pops and, you know, he was family. And then Miss Minnie was in the bedroom upstairs and, you know, her therapy was sweeping the driveway, sweeping the streets. And she was this little old lady that no longer had a place. So my grandmother gave people a place. And then my own mom, she always opened her door to people and animals, I remember there was one woman, I'll change her name. She might still be living, but she was a nurse. She was a battered woman. My mother, who was a barber, she met this woman at the barber shop, noticed that she was an abused woman. And next thing I know, this lady's living with us. And every day when I would come home from school, she would be sitting in our little breakfast nook with this red, uh, orangish red record player playing either Godspell or Jesus Christ Superstar, (laughs) the whole album. (laughs) I would come home and I would hear, what's the buzz? Tell me what's What's (laughs) happening. And I would sit in the room with her and I would witness her tears. Mm. I would witness her prayers. Some mornings I would wake up and there would be people sleeping on the rug in our living room. For some reason, our house was a house where, you know, kids that were gay and lesbian who were kicked out of their homes and battered by parents or siblings, they came to our house and stayed there until they could be safe. My mother brought a lot of people home from the barber shop. She would see <laughs> A lot of wounded people. I mean, so it was it was beautiful and challenging. Yeah, beautiful and challenging because it was like, "Huh, well, who are we going to find today?" It didn't it didn't matter. It had to be this this expansive way of being, so that we learned and grew to know that community is family and family is community. And it's not about blood ties. It's about these heart connections. So my mother really taught me that. And so when it became my turn to be in that role, I stepped into that role. You know, I I stepped into that as well, not even thinking about that legacy of what the women in my family for generations have done. I would say since freedom, Mm. since freedom.
1: You, Dr. Kelly, you have me chills, laughing, crying. Thank you. I just feel, I feel your great grandma, your grandma, your mother, you, and to know, like, I feel that much power in you, like, that, that line of helping and community care and tending. And um, I just feel so moved by it.
0: Thank you. I feel very fortunate that I have had these very strong role models. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, something that I learned from my ancestors, from my grandparents, was also the importance of being open emotionally because they weren't necessarily that. They weren't necessarily emotional people in terms of emotional expression. And that is the point where, when I look back and I trace the illness in my family, when I trace the maladies, for me, it is that somatization of unexpressed emotions. It's like watching my mom as a woman of 35 having rheumatoid arthritis. And I knew in my heart, gosh, if only mom could express her anger. Yeah. Maybe she would be okay. Yeah. So I'm in this child's mind. I was like, if only. She was tending to me and tending to everybody with no time to express what was in her heart, her own sadness, her own grieving.
2: Mm.
0: And... That's where we break. That's where we break at that point when we can't really hold and be with the emotions of being a human. Yeah. of being a person. That we are conditioned in the doing and not in the... The being of a soul that can laugh, that can cry, that can grieve, that can be angry, that can be afraid, that can be passionate and joyful, like all of that. Mm-hmm. It's like for me, that's the part, that's another part that that slavery served my people. That you couldn't be a slave and have a bad day. Mm -hmm. Yes. That you're hurt. Oh my gosh, you're taking away my child. Oh, you're selling my child. Oh gosh, you just have to have a straight face to keep from dying. Mm -hmm. So I understand the fear of sharing true emotions because sharing true emotions meant you will probably die if you express how you feel. And I'm glad you took that breath because we definitely need to have a wide container to be with this truth. Yes. Which is not an easy story. Yeah. It's not an easy reality. Most people don't want to even hear it. That's why I appreciate you so much. Because these are the things that we live into, but don't talk about. Yes. Don't express. Find ways to numb it. Can I? How much sugar can I eat? How much drinks can I have? How many, you know, whatever. How many cigarettes can I smoke? Yes. Find ways to numb those unexpressed, unprocessed feelings. So... That's why I have my rattle. <laughs> it's like, I don't have to have the words to express my grief and sadness, but trust me, even today, I'm going to go downstairs and beat the hell out of my drums.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for gifting us with these truths. And, and I want to know, like, how are you doing this year as a Black woman? as a mother with everything, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, I know, has been going on for eons, but with how it's so forefront and center right now, how are you doing?
0: Uh, I wanna be hopeful. And there's a part of me that's very hopeful. And then there's another part of me that is grieving so much, And as a mom of three black children, there's that part that is afraid for them, that is still hypervigilant as they are young adults in the world doing great things on their path. But it doesn't matter what you do because as a brown person, a black person, there is still a bit of a target on our backs. And that's just, The reality, we're always under more suspicion than anybody else. That's the narrative and the fiber of this country. So there's never an easiness when I'm not in communication with my children. Yeah. When my husband is at the grocery store a little too long, is he okay? Is he pulled over on the side of the road? Is he dead? Is he all right? So, this year has been very interesting in that on May 25th, when George Floyd was murdered in front of the world, really a modern day lynching for the whole globe to see in a way that was so horrible and callous with a person knee on his neck with such a blank look, hands in his pocket, like he is. I guess it's his right to take away a life. Yeah. So that event, that tragedy, somehow it woke some people up. And then it felt like a really huge gaslighting in terms of, okay. Black people have been getting murdered at the hands of vigilantes and law enforcement for 401 years. So how is it now all of a sudden that good white people are saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was happening. Oh my goodness, racism really exists. Oh my, what? Are you kidding? So this just felt like, wait a minute, what planet am I living on?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How, how could white people not know when we've been saying it? We've, we've been saying it. We've been asking for, for change. And so then it becomes this piece of, well, of course, that's privilege. You have a privilege. White privilege is that you don't have to know. Yes. You don't need to know because your life is going to stay your life. You're going to keep doing what you're doing. Black people are dying. Okay, I'm still going to get my latte. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to. So that bit of gaslighting, I mean, that just felt a bit surreal. Like people are getting this now after all this time? Really? And then I asked my friends, well, stay awake. Don't fall back asleep. Do, do something. Use your privilege for good. If you are disgusted and sad and calling me and asking what can you do, do something to change the system. It's not about the emotionality of it. It's about the equality. Do something to level the field that we plowed as black people. Do something to level the field. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was so exhausting because my good white friends were feeling feeling bad, but still calling me, asking me a lot of questions and, and wanting to figure out something to do, but to be able to talk about that was emotionally taxing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Emotionally taxing. And My dissertation was on multicultural counseling competencies. So I've studied this. I've researched this. I've written it up. I've presented on it. And so asking to be paid what I'm worth is not something that I hesitate in because this is my area of competency. I'm just, I'm not just a person that happens to be black that I can talk about this. And so kind of looking at that dynamic too. Oh, well, can you come do this? Can you come to that? Really? That's caught slavery too. Yes. So well, no, I'm not going to come and, you know, speak to your people for free. Yeah. It's was like, no, that that's, that's still slavery. If you have 40 acres and a mule for me, I'll take it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for valuing yourself and having those boundaries. It's such beautiful role modeling. And I imagine not always easy.
0: No, no. And because I am an educator in the heart of me, there is information that I want to get out and that I want to share. And so I have to temper myself and ask myself, am I, am I honoring my own knowledge base and my own skills and my time? Yeah. I mean, my, my children, they would listen to me on the phone with friends and they would roll their eyes and go, mom, why are you spending so much time teaching your white friends? What? Yeah. What are you doing, mom? <laughs> Stop it. And then I said, well, I'm an educator. What it's just natural. It just comes out, you know, it just comes out. But there is a retreating that I also do. I mean, it's like, so I go out and I do my work and then I come back in mm-hmm. and get really quiet. I do a lot of meditation. I do a lot of work with sound, with sound healing, with, with mantra, Um but that balance is always there it's like do i speak to this group even though they can't pay my fee
1: yeah and i imagine it it depends so much on when you tap in like the integrity and the congruence and what actually feels right and honoring of you and the situation and that it's not always a simple straightforward answer right it's a case by it's a case by case and
0: uh yeah it's a case by case basis, but I always have to just check in with myself what is this feeling like for me yeah like okay what's the root of that yeah feeling that I'm feeling a little agitated right now where is that coming from what's 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 the genesis of that what is that bringing up for me so every encounter is an opportunity for me to sit with myself mm-hmm. And see what it is that I need, what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. Yeah. And then looking at the opportunity of of sharing.
1: Yeah. It's powerful to hear you talk about, and I work actually with a lot of women business owners and It's just such a thing for us to reckon with around finances and economics and our valuing of ourselves and our valuing of other. And then for you as a Black woman, it's like all the other layers with race on top of that that I just want to acknowledge. And like I just really appreciate how much you are tuning into yourself and that deeper essence to try to get the clear answers when these situations come up.
0: Yes, it is a bit draining sometimes.
1: I I hear that
0: and I deeply appreciate that. I, I do I do grapple with it. Yeah. And I think that's healthy too because we get to have these dialogues with ourselves about, you know, what are we doing? Am I living my truth? Am I in my integrity? Yeah. Am I doing the work that I feel that I'm meant to do
1: in this body? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Dr. Kelly, I know that you are a poet. And just as we're talking about expression and valuing and waking up and staying awake, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with us your poem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I
0: would, I would love to, I would love to. Um, and, and I will say that a few years ago, my, My father-in-law died in 2018, and I had been walking around with the galleys to my poetry book for probably four or five years. It was 95% finished. But when my father-in-law died of congestive heart failure, it was still unexpected because people can live years with congestive heart failure. So when he died, it shocked my system. And I was like, I'm going to publish my poetry book. So there it is, my little poetry Gorgeous. What's it called? It's called Poetry, Prose, and Miscellaneous Musings, Volume 1. So more to come. But I published it because I wanted to validate myself and to say I am a published poet, that this is a huge part of my journey in, in life. So... It was an act of loving myself and loving my dream.
1: Mm, Thank you for doing
0: that. Thank you. So this poem is called Stay Awake. And I wrote this August 28th, 2020. My dear friends, do not fall back asleep. Although the days are short and the night is long, do not fall back asleep. If your heart still beats for humanity, I beg you, go find your kindling, reignite the flame within your heart. Do not fall back asleep. Remember 401 years of terror for black lives, reaffirm your commitment to justice, do not fall back asleep. Remember we still can't breathe, even though we find a way to keep smiling, laughing, drumming, crying, working, marching, do not fall back asleep. For me and mine, there is no option. We cannot step out of our black skin and take a day off. There is no day off. Our ancestral melanated garment calls us to action every day. Do not fall back asleep. My dear ally, there can be no peace in our land if the blood of black people continues to flow through the streets, please stay awake. Do not fall back asleep.
1: (sighs) Dr. Kelly, thank you so much.
0: Thank you thank you for having a container to hold what i've shared and to hear with your heart
1: thank you yeah i'm i've heard with my whole heart and i know that the listeners have as well and i thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to be with us and to share your wisdom and the incredible beauty of all of the amazing ways that you contribute and show up for so many people in this world right now.
0: Thank you, it's been my pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, There is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.